Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Creation and Conflict podcast, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. This is your host, Daniel Eaton. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of several different theological positions or doctrines on how we read Genesis chapter 1. But first, I have a couple of announcements to make. First, we have a new website for the podcast. The link will be in the show notes, but you can visit bit.ly slash conflict pod to get there. That particular link will take you to the sources page where you can see all the sources where you can subscribe to the podcast. But there are some other pages as well there, including one that will list all of the different resources that I mentioned in the podcast as far as uh, YouTube channels or other podcasts or uh, books on Amazon or whatever. I'm going to have a master list there that you can look through and see what all those are. Uh, Second, the podcast is now spreading to other platforms. When I first did the introduction uh, episode, it was only on Anchor FM. But in the last couple of days, it has spread to Breaker, Pocket Casts, Spotify, and as of this morning, both Apple iTunes and Google Podcasts. So you can find it at all of those major places. And it has been submitted to Stitcher, Radio Public, CastBox, and Overcast. But I have not been notified that it has gone live at those particular locations. But those will be coming. And when they go live, I will be adding the links to them to the uh, sources page that I gave you the link to earlier. Also, we have a new Discord server. For those of you that are on Discord, I thought it would be fun to have some places where we could chat about particular episodes or particular topics in a way that is conversational uh, without a lot of the uh, conflict and confrontation that you see in some of the more heated groups on Facebook and other places. Now, I haven't decided whether or not Discord server will be limited to supporters of the podcast or if all listeners will be allowed there. I'm kind of leaning towards allowing all listeners to become a member of the Discord server and having the patrons or sponsors of the podcast uh, marked on the Discord server as uh, having you know special permissions or special levels on the Discord server. Speaking of supporters... I have also set up a Patreon account for those of you who would like to support the podcast financially. Uh, there will be four or five different tiers there of support ranging from a dollar a month to $10 a month. Uh, perks for those particular tiers will include after show streaming content where I may elaborate on something that I mentioned in the podcast, go into more detail on something, um, mentioned things that I didn't think of until after I'd stopped recording, all those kind of things. Uh, There will also be an audio version of the deleted chapter out of my Kindle book where I go into what exactly I believe Genesis is saying and why I think that that's the case. Um, There will also be free digital copies of the entire book. I'm going to be posting my show notes there for those who might be interested in the show notes. 
and when I get the transcripts completed for each episode, those will be posted there for people that are um, in a particular tier. There's also a very special tier for Patreon that I'm calling Executive Producers, and that is the $10 tier. I'm limiting that to 10 people, and the $10 Patreon tier will allow a person four times a year, as long as they have their subscription, to produce an episode of the show by deciding the show topic or even participating in the show in the form of an interview. So this is going to be open to people who uh, I might not otherwise interview, but they might want to explain their particular view or their particular interpretation of Genesis. Maybe they think that I haven't explained it fairly enough or haven't given all of the arguments for a particular position, which would be kind of difficult for me to do because I have my own view, which creates a bias. I'll do my best to be objective and I ran it in the way that I uh, present the different views. But this will basically allow people that support the show at that particular level to actually participate in the show in a way that I haven't really seen in other podcasts. So check out the Patreon account so you can see the different tiers and what is available. The link for that will be in the show notes, but you can go to patreon.com slash conflict podcast to get to the Patreon account. Finally, we have a new sponsor for the show, believe it or not. Um, I'll get into that at the end of the show, but there is something that you can do that would only take you a minute or two of your time that would really help the podcast out in uh, spreading it to some other platforms other than those that are strictly for podcast. Now, on to the top. We have a lot to cover today, and I may not get it all in one episode. I might actually have to split this into two episodes because there's a lot to cover. So if you've got a pen and paper for notes, that would be a good thing because you might want to make some notes here. But I want to start the topic with a quote from the late blogger and author, Rachel Held Evans. You can see a pattern of introductory quotes in coming episodes. I hope to start each episode with a quote to kind of set the context. But Rachel Held Evans said something that just kind of struck me between the eyes. She said, I'm ready to stop waging war and start washing feet. And I think that perfectly sums up the purpose of this podcast in general. And it's a perfect fit for this particular episode, which is going to be on our beliefs and the way that those beliefs impact our view of Genesis and how we wage war on Genesis or over Genesis. Unfortunately, increasingly since the time of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and such, Christianity has become kind of a brand that has become more associated with what we believe and what we fight against rather than how we act. And it's those beliefs, some of those beliefs, that are the core of our topic today. I created a meme about this one time that some people took offense at. 
Uh, in the meme, I said that one's interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 is frequently more of a mirror of their view on some other theological positions than it is something that actually informs our theology. In other words, our theology shapes how we see Genesis instead of the other way around. I actually compared it to an inkblot test. What you see when you look at an inkblot tells a lot about your inner thinking and the filters in how you see things. And it's basically a reflection of a lot of the subconscious influences that you have that you may not otherwise be aware of. It's kind of like those red glasses that you put on as a kid and you looked at a page that looked like it was nothing but dots, but you put on the red glasses and suddenly, you know, some of the dots disappeared and you actually saw maybe something written or some shape or something. Those kinds of filters have a huge impact and influence on how we see things, including Genesis chapter one. It's kind of like those quote-unquote influencers that you see on social media, on Instagram and such that get paid an awful lot of money to uh, wear particular clothes or promote particular things. That kind of influence is very, very profitable for big corporations because once you get people impacted or influenced by a particular thing, it can shape their behavior and their beliefs about other things. In the case of theological doctrines in the church, what you believe about some very core doctrines of Christianity and how you might take them to one extreme or another really, really shape how you interpret the creation account in Genesis chapter one. It's the issue is that these particular doctrines are understood different ways by different Christian denominations. And even within a particular denomination, you may have more conservative congregations, more liberal congregations, more conservative or more liberal attendees to these particular churches. So you're going to find a wide range of beliefs about these particular doctrines. And because the doctrines themselves actually developed over time and because scientific findings and scientific conclusions have developed over time, you'll see those particular worldview influences affecting interpretation of the Bible as well. Now, to me, it's pretty interesting as somebody who kind of studies sociology and psychology and the way people interact with each other, that I can ask somebody what they believe about Genesis 1, what they believe Genesis 1 to be teaching, and can pretty much using that particular interpretation back up and see how strongly they believe on uh, some of these doctrines that we're about to get into, how extreme of a position that they take on some of those. It's kind of like having a sign that has multiple languages on it and asking somebody to read the sign. Well, you can tell by which passage of the sign that they read, what language they speak, and from their particular dialect and accent, you can identify a lot about where that person might be from just because of what they have interpreted from the sign. And... Genesis 1 is a lot like that. 
uh, when somebody tells you their interpretation of Genesis 1, it basically is a reflection of a lot of things that went into that. I mentioned before that theology develops over time, and I want to make something really clear in that our theology is different from the Bible itself. The Bible is the unchanging Word of God. It is infallible. We, however, are not, and our interpretations of things are not. Theology is basically our interpretation of these particular doctrines that are in the Bible and what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, all of that. It's it's the study of the Bible, just as science is the study of natural things. And just as science and scientific conclusions are different from the absolute objective fact of this is a particular rock that has a particular fossil in it, our interpretations of the Bible are separate from the Bible itself. And once we understand that particular distinction, it makes it a lot easier to have conversations about Genesis that are full of grace and humility and respect because we realize that we are not infallible ourselves. And even though we might believe that the Holy Spirit has led us to a particular interpretation, our interpretation is not the Bible. So when somebody is posing arguments against a particular interpretation, they are not opposing the Bible. They're not disagreeing with God. They're not disbelieving the Bible. They're addressing an interpretation. And as long as we can keep those two things separate and understand that we can talk about different interpretations objectively, we have a key to diffusing a lot of the conflict and confrontation that is over the topic of creation and turn it more into a productive dialogue and discussion instead of a heated debate that doesn't change anybody's minds. Now, I mentioned that there are core doctrines in the church. One of the primary reference books on the different doctrines of the church that is almost a standard textbook in most seminaries is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I have a link to that on the resource page on our webpage, but that goes through the core doctrines of the church and the official position on those particular core doctrines. There is a companion book written by a different author called Historical Theology that I highly recommend. It is written by Greg Allison. And what Greg does in the book Historical Theology is he mirrors the list of doctrines that are in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and shows how those particular doctrines developed over time and how the church leaders and early church fathers might have believed different things about those doctrines at different times in church history. It's a very important book to get people to realize that doctrines are not infallible either, that because doctrines have changed over time, it's evidence that there are different views of doctrines, and therefore talking about these doctrines themselves in an objective way can influence people to realize that it's okay to 
have certain levels of certainty about different doctrines or even disagree about some of the nuances of different doctrines and still remain in fellowship and not in conflict. A perfect example of that would be the doctrine of eschatology or end times. There's a lot of interest in end times. You saw a huge popularity of the Left Behind books and other end times movies that try to reflect a particular view of eschatology. But the church is much more open to people who might believe that the prophecies on the Mount of Olives, uh, that those prophecies in the Olivet Discourse have already been fulfilled in the, the fall of Jerusalem, but everything else is still in the future. You'll find a lot more acceptance of that kind of view, even though it isn't strictly the quote-unquote left-behind timeline of events, then you will different views of creation for some unknown reason. For some reason, creation is the hot-button topic. It's polarizing. It's like allowing homosexual pastors or the abortion topic or anything else. As soon as you mention that word, everybody goes to their corners, the fists come up, and they're ready to fight to defend their particular position. But you don't have that with a lot of these other doctrines that have different views that allow a wide range of views on that particular topic within orthodoxy. So one of the goals of this podcast is to show that orthodox Christianity allows that kind of range of topics when it comes to creation as well. So the first doctrine that I want to get into is one of the five solas that Martin Luther originated back in the Protestant Reformation, and that is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Now, sola scriptura is Latin for scripture alone, and it's a Protestant doctrine that a lot of Protestants don't really understand, and you definitely get misunderstandings of it from Catholics and those in the Orthodox traditions. Um, And it's often, as a lot of these other doctrines are, it's often taken to an extreme. And because that extreme impacts our beliefs and how we accept evidence, how we decide what is true and not it affects our beliefs on creation as well. The extreme view of Sola Scriptura is that the Bible alone refers to almost a solo Scriptura view of the Bible, where the Bible is considered the only authority on every single topic. The truth is that the Bible doesn't cover every single topic. It specifically says that there's a lot of things that it didn't include, Uh, Just in the life of Christ and in the teachings of Christ, the Gospels don't include everything. So, Sola Scriptura, properly understood, and the way that it's taught in the Reformation, is not that the Bible contains everything we need to know about every single topic, and that it's the final authority on anything that we can think of, but rather it's the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. In other words, it's the standard for spiritual truth. 
It's the standard for everything we need to know in order to have a saving faith and how we're to practice that faith. Everything that we need for those particular items is in the Bible, and anything that the Bible says about those particular items cannot be overwritten by a papal decree or the teachings of some pastor or some private revelation that we have. The Bible is our standard for interpretations of all of those things related to the faith we have in Christ and how to live out our Christian life. So, sola scriptura doesn't really even apply to Genesis 1 because the first chapter of Genesis doesn't talk about the faith and practice limitations that are placed on the doctrine of sola scriptura. What you believe Genesis 1 to be saying about when Adam existed or how old dirt is or when when the moon came to be or whatever, those are not salvation topics. They're a particular view of those things are not required for salvation. They are not required for how we live the Christian life. And so sola scriptura doesn't apply to those. An extreme position of sola scriptura would, but that's a misrepresentation of that particular doctrine. It's actually a distortion of sola scriptura because it's been removed from its limiting context to a broader context that it was never intended to apply to. So this does not mean that we're placing science over the Bible or trusting science more than the Bible or trusting the teachings of some man rather than the Bible if we go to outside sources to figure out and help us understand what Genesis 1 is talking about. The Bible says that creation shows God's work, that Christ was the one who made all things from nothing, and that he holds all things together. Those are clear statements in the Bible about Christ as creator, about God as creator. Those are items of faith that would fall under the faith and practice of sola scriptura. But trying to extend that to the date for dirt is an abuse of that particular doctrine. The second doctrine I want to cover is the doctrine of inspiration. Now, inspiration or the idea of inspiration taken to an extreme is the idea that the very words in the Bible are God's words, that it basically amount the, the process of inspiration basically amounts to a form of automatic writing where uh Moses just pinned down the exact words that were given to him by God in some kind of vision or spiritual encounter. But that is not what inspiration teaches. It doesn't that the Bible was dictated to man. It's actually the work of both man and God. God inspired it. God made sure that what was uh, being taught in the writings were true and were preserved but the specific word choices uh, that were used to explain something, the particular points of view of the human authors are something that we should not 
claim to be God's words, and therefore, if you try to understand them differently than I understand them, you are disagreeing with God. In fact, to elevate the doctrine of inspiration, to remove the influence of the human author, it's often done as a fallacious appeal to authority that if you don't disagree, if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. But it actually sacrifices the doctrine of inerrancy on the altar of inspiration. Let me explain what I mean by that. Inerrancy is, and we will get to this one later, inerrancy is the doctrine that the Bible does not contain any errors. And in inerrancy, if we elevate those particular words to words of God and the perspective of God, we have a big problem because there are differences, for example, between the gospel accounts where one gospel might say Christ went to place A and then he went to place B. And another gospel might say that he did it in the other order. Well, those are the memories of the authors of the gospels. And the point is not to teach a particular order in that particular case, but to relay what Christ did, what he said when he was in particular places. If we say that those particular words recorded there are all from God's perspective, then God is basically disagreeing with himself which order different things happened. So we have to allow for the worldview and the perspective of the different authors of the Bible if we're going to hold to any kind of any form of inerrancy or infallibility. There are actually some there is actually some confusion between infallibility and inerrancy. Those terms are often used interchangeably. And there's a good link that it's rather lengthy that I'll put in the show notes and on our resource page from the Blue Letter Bible that has an article that kind of distinguishes between the two and shows what the differences are between the two. I'll get into infallibility and inerrancy and explain that a little bit and show how that applies to interpretations of Genesis 1. Infallibility is the belief that there can be no errors in what the Bible teaches because the Bible is from God. God is truth. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. So anything that came from God cannot have errors. It's kind of a broad term, refers to the knowledge that's being taught in the Bible as kind of a general thing. Some people believe that the infallibility of Scripture is actually limited to these the items of faith and practice that Sola Scriptura refers to, that it refers to spiritual truths. It refers to the things that Paul said that all Scripture is profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine, and we're covering some of these doctrines here and how they're properly understood in Christianity, and for reproof and instruction in righteousness. So, kind of going back to how Sola Scriptura 
refer to these categories as faith and practice. The Bible is profitable for doctrines and for how we're to live and the corrections or instruction uh, that are in the Bible that confront us about our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, and how we're to live as a righteous person. So a lot of people believe that infallibility is kind of limited to those particular topics. Others will take infallibility that the Bible cannot be wrong and apply it to everything else that might be in there, like some historical account. Uh, that 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 all the little bitty items in a description of a historical account cannot have any error in there, as if that is what the Bible itself says that it is profitable for. It doesn't say that it's profitable for the date of some battle that Joshua had against some nation that was opposing Israel, even though we might go through and try to figure that out on a timeline somewhere. It doesn't say that it is profitable for coming up with a date for the universe or whatever. So we have to understand that it's an abuse of this particular doctrine to try to make it apply to everything. Now, the difference between infallibility and inerrancy is that inerrancy claims that there are no errors in the Bible. It gets down in the weeds where infallibility is a general statement about the Bible as a whole. Inerrancy gets down into the details that are in the Bible and says that every single detail there is without error. Its only limitation really is that it says that the original manuscripts are without error. So if it sees some differences between two different accounts or whatever, it can say, well, that is a an error that came to be in the copying of the Bible or what, uh, the copying of manuscripts or the translation of manuscripts or whatever. Because we don't really have the original manuscripts to go back and apply this to, it's something that a lot of people are getting away from saying, I hold to this. It's kind of an illogical approach to take a view of inerrancy and elevate it to an extreme position of inerrancy when you're only going to apply inerrancy to the original manuscripts. It's kind of odd to me, frankly. Um, there was actually recently a... Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy that a lot of theologians attended and a lot of them signed off on. I'm going to devote a whole episode to that in the season or series that we do on history about what that says and about some of the controversy over it and frankly about why I personally would not have signed it. Because in my mind, there are differences between what the Bible contains and what it actually teaches. I believe that the Bible contains accommodation, and that is going to be a messy topic that I'm going to have to devote a, an entire episode to. Because once you accept accommodation in the Bible, that means that you can't take a hyper-literal, woodenly literal 
approach to reading the Bible, which is something that is very opposed to my fundamentalist upbringing, my very conservative, legalistic theology that I learned, you know, as a child and growing up. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a game changer. So I'm going to develop a whole episode to that. So stay stay tuned for that. But the point is in discussing inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy is that some people will raise the, the specifics of a doctrine of creation to that level that these things apply to. It's not just a doctrine that God is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, but they will take in a, a specific stand on things like how long the days of Genesis were, and they will incorporate that even into a doctrine for the denomination that we as a denomination insist that the days of Genesis were normal days. Well, I agree that the days of Genesis were talking about normal days, but that doesn't mean that we should elevate that to the point of a doctrine of the church to the exclusion of all of the people that have other views on those particular days. Um, to me, the doctrines of the church should be very related to ancient creeds of the church and should not be used as something that we build walls around our particular church or our particular denomination and not allow any other influence or any other ideas about these things into our church. Now, just as I mentioned that the doctrines of the church changed over time, and the doctrines were kind of developed in the order of significance to the Christian faith, it may very well be that the doctrine of creation is something that is developing over time. I believe that there are people out there trying to actually get specific view of Genesis to be incorporated in the doctrine of creation. Uh, You see that in a very recent uh, news story that came out about, let's see, I think it was a branch of the Lutherans. I'll find the link and put it in the show notes that came out and specified a doctrine uh, that of creation that said that the days in Genesis were literal days. Uh, You also see it in some uh, writings on from creation committees. I know both Presbyterian Church of America, I think it was, and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I think both have big writings that were developed by creation committees that took a couple of years to study this topic and presented a paper that basically said, we think we should fight over this, or we don't think we should fight over this. I'm going to cover those things in the history section of the podcast as well. But uh, so there's, there's a lot about the history, the recent history of some of these doctrines that will be covered in that history section. Now, the next doctrine that I want to cover doesn't really sound at first glance that it applies, but that's the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 18, 
that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until all of it's been fulfilled. That's my paraphrase. And some will use that as an excuse to get down into the weeds and down into the leaves on the weeds in studying a particular passage and say that every single little bitty thing is is what God put there and it's put there for a reason. The problem with that approach is that Genesis 1 is not the law. Genesis 2 and 3 about the garden and the fall are not the law. The law is introduced in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and it's all those thou shalt nots and what you're supposed to do if you become unclean and how to get clean and how to tithe to the temple and all of those things. And we can apply the preservation of the law to those things. We actually have two different accounts. We have the account in Exodus where Moses laid out the law And then just before he turned over the ruling of Israel to Joshua, just before he died, he said, now I want to remind you about all this stuff. Don't forget this stuff. You know, when you go into the new land, remember all of this stuff. And he goes through all that stuff again. The passages that just make your eyes bleed when you're trying to read through your Bible in a year and you're going through all these arcane laws that don't really apply to us anyway because we're not under the Jewish covenant. Well, Genesis is not part of that law. And even if Genesis was part of that law, Christ came and fulfilled the law. So it's you can say that the law has actually passed away at this point. It not only doesn't apply to us, it doesn't apply to the Jews anymore either. There is a new covenant, a new covenant in Christ. And so applying the jot and tittle level of preservation to anything, any pet doctrine that you want to apply it to in the Bible is really an abuse of preservation. In fact, the if you've ever studied textual criticism and how the Bible is translated, and you look at the differences between all of the manuscripts that we have of the Bible, there are no two manuscripts that of, of let's say, the New Testament, or let's say the Gospel of John. There are no two manuscripts of the Gospel of John of any considerable length that don't have differences between the two manuscripts. And it's actually the differences between manuscripts that let those who study textual criticism to trace the origins of the manuscripts and where certain changes were introduced over the course of history in the copying of a manuscript. And you can basically kind of create a family tree almost of documents or manuscripts of the Bible going back to the closest that we can find to the original sources. So, the fact that we have all of these differences, thousands and thousands of differences, that don't really change any Christian doctrine, that don't really have an impact in what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to believe, show that the references to the law or the references to the Bible being preserved goes back to solus, uh, goes back to inspiration in a broad sense, the broad knowledge of the Bible, the concepts that are in the Bible that are taught across all of the manuscripts and taught across all of the translations are what 
inspiration applies to, and it's what the preservation or the promise of preservation applies to. But when we when we try to take this and elevate it to some extreme position, it's it's kind of missing the forest for the trees or even the leaves on the trees. We don't see the big picture. We miss what's actually trying to be communicated because we're so far down into the details. I've made a meme about this in the past, but it's it's basically like being so focused on the musical score that you miss the music. And I kind of get into that when I'm editing these these podcasts. I get so focused on some particular waveform of some particular blunder that I've made, you know, that I want to edit out or whatever, that I miss the context of the entire podcast as a whole. So, you know, it's just, just an example of why we shouldn't take some of these things to the extreme, because when we do, it causes us to miss the message. Now, the next two items that I want to discuss are related, and I'm going to try to make this brief, but the next two items have to do with our hermeneutics, our approach to how we understand the Bible. I grew up in a very fundamentalist, literal view of the Bible. That particular view is called a historical, grammatical hermeneutic, and it's primarily used by fundamentalists. The historical, grammatical hermeneutic basically says everything that's in the Bible is history, and it can be studied and should be studied and should be understood at a grammatical level. It is history in genre to be understood by looking closely at the Strong's numbers and your Hebrew dictionary and your Greek dictionary and what these particular words and what type of preposition a particular word is and that kind of stuff. It's kind of, to me, it's a little bit circular in its, in its reasoning in that it says we should understand these things very literally and very historically because they're very literal, literal and they're very historical. It's a little bit circular that way. But that is the approach that you see in evangelical fundamentalism today. And it's why people that are in that particular category of Christianity are the ones that are most likely to insist on a literal interpretation of Genesis. When you come to the 10% or so of Christians worldwide that are young earth creationists, you will pretty much find all of them within the fundamentalist category of denominations or at least raised in those particular fundamentalist um, denominations and churches. The approach of the mainline denominations, though, as well as the approach by Judaism, is referred to as the historical critical hermeneutic. It's also referred to, sometimes in a very derogatory manner, as higher criticism. Basically, the historical critical hermeneutic tries to understand the original meaning and the original intent in the original context of when something was written. It's something that you see popularized 
in the context of creation in John Walton's Lost World series. These are listed on the resource page on the website, but he has an excellent series. Even if you disagree with his particular conclusions, it's an excellent series that shows the similarities of the creation accounts with the other Mesopotamian cultures around there and their creation accounts. Some people oppose that approach and say you shouldn't have to be an expert in Sumerian culture in order to understand the Bible. Uh, you, You should just be able to read it and understand it like a second grader would. Well, both of those positions are an extreme one in my mind because of what I have noticed in the text, and I'll get into this later, but because of what I personally noticed in the text, people said that I held that position because I was a follower of John Walton or had read John Walton. Well, no, that's not the case. If you, When I studied the text objectively, I came to realize how Moses was thinking or the author of Genesis was thinking and that's another debate who who authored Genesis we can get in we'll get into that later but I came to that by an objective view of what all was in the text without knowing that the authors of that time thought that particular way and we can tell that they thought that particular way because of all of the writings the extra biblical writings that we have from that particular area at that particular time. The cultural geographical worldview of the time impacted the authors and is reflected in what they wrote. I noticed it from the reflection. John Walton actually gets into the influences, which is kind of another uh, thing that we'll get into a little bit in a further episode that we're going to discuss on things outside the Bible, outside of doctrines that impact the uh, Genesis, Genesis interpretation. But basically, higher criticism is what people like John Walton do in trying to find the original context and the original meaning of particular words. I did a, a, a meme about this as well, and maybe I'll link to these memes in the, in the uh, resource page or include a page that has some of these memes. But basically, I did a meme one time that said that if we want to believe that what Moses said was true, then we can't reinterpret that in a 21st century mindset. We need to understand what Moses was thinking and what Moses was trying to communicate in what he wrote in order to say that what he was teaching was correct. And just as a side note, we need to do that when we are discussing creation views with somebody that doesn't hold our view. If I am going to debate an atheist about evolution, for example, I need to understand what that atheist actually believes about evolution and not reinterpret evolution from my mindset and my worldview that's full of distorted and outright false understanding of evolution that is taught by some creationists and even some 
creation ministries that are out there. For me to fight those particular things is for me to fight something that that atheist doesn't believe. So it's not productive. If I want to say that that atheist is wrong about what he believes, I need to address what he believes. And if I'm going to say that Moses was right in what he believed and what he said about how Adam was created or whatever, I need to address what Adam believed and what or, or what Moses believed and what Moses said and not some modern understanding of that. Now, I know this is getting a little long and I promise I'm going to wrap up soon, but the next topic that I want to just briefly cover is the doctrine of sola fide. It's another one of Martin Luther's famous solas, but sola fide is Latin for faith alone. And the context there is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. It applies to our salvation. In other words, it's not by works, lest any man should boast. Uh, It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we inherit from our parents, but we are saved through faith alone. But some hear this idea of faith alone and stretch it well outside of that salvation context to apply it to things like creation and say that there are certain things that are found in the historical record, fossils or the dating of a fossil or geologic layers that the flood can't really explain and that kind of stuff. And they will say, well, that's just a matter of faith and that those things are there, that if you have a different opinion of that, you are basically attacking the Christian faith. Or I've even had it argued that those particular items are placed there as a test for our faith to see who really has faith in the Bible and who doesn't. Well, that's really a really bad distortion of the idea of faith alone. Frankly, it kind of reminds me of how quickly some people play the race card when it comes to debates in society, particularly political debates. Uh, When somebody throws the race card out on the table, it really disrupts any kind of political discourse or any kind of productive discussion at that point, because they've basically said that a particular position is a personal attack based on the color of someone's skin. It's kind of a defense mechanism that is to dismiss a particular person or dismiss a particular... If I can say, oh, well, you're conservative, therefore you're a racist. I don't have to listen to your consider your conservative ideas about prison reform or immigration or whatever because, oh, well, he's just a racist. And I can dismiss it because... I've labeled it as something derisive. Well, kind of the flip side of that is labeling an idea of, well, this is something that I just have to believe by faith. The reason that that's a big issue is that 1 Thessalonians 5.12 tells us to test everything and hold on to the good. We are supposed to test our beliefs to see if our beliefs are actually valid. And we can't really do that when we hold a position by faith, regardless of any evidence to the contrary. Any position that we say that we're just that we're going to stand firm on this 
because it's a matter of faith, is something that can't be tested. And as such, there's not really any evidence that can be used to dissuade somebody from that particular position. So in that sense, it's an illogical position because it can't be reasoned against at all. So we should really avoid taking the idea of faith alone and applying it to something in the Bible that we can actually test. When the Bible talks about creation being the handiwork of God and that his unseen attributes, which would include truth, can be seen in the things around us, then when the Bible talks about the creation or the Bible makes references to cosmology, like the sun rising and setting or whatever, we should be able to examine those things that the Bible is talking about to bring us to a better understanding of what is being said about those things. Now, finally, before, and you say, yes, finally, uh, finally, I wanted to discuss something to kind of bookend this topic. We started out talking about doctrines and how doctrines change over time. I want to discuss the idea of provisional theology. That's a personal level. That's what you personally believe in your personal theology. Those, your theology should be provisional as well. Unfortunately, most Christians never really deeply study the doctrines of creation and the different beliefs about creation. They just read it through the lens of their particular worldview of how they were taught and take it at face value and never really scratch the surface to see what's underneath here. What is it that a cursory reading of this particular text might be missing? Genesis 1 is a very complex chapter in what it contains and some of the things that it references. And I've got a whole episode planned on what those things are that need to be incorporated into whatever position you hold, things like the age of the earth. But most Christians don't get into it to study it any further. They have approached it as an answer to whatever the current conflict of the day is. And today that conflict is, how old is the earth and did evolution happen? To some degree, whether Adam was literal or not. But those three things are the hot-button, controversial, dogmatic positions that people read the text in order to answer. And they don't really dig any deeper, and they miss a lot of things. And the sad thing is, is that this particular idea often comes down from the pulpit. I've been a Christian since 1967, so 52 years now, over 52 years. And I have attended church every Sunday, or if I didn't attend in person, watched multiple sermons online to make up for it. In my 52 years of sermons, and you can multiply this out, but it's maybe, I don't know, 3,000 sermons or something. There's only been twice in my life that I've seen a pastor get up in the pulpit and apologize for something that they taught earlier and say, I was wrong about something, or I now hold a different position about something. And that kind of 
the lack of that kind of humility from the pulpit basically implies a level of inerrancy from the pulpit. And people come, people then believe that if the pastor doesn't question, I shouldn't either. Some people have even thrown the verse out about, you know, God is not the author of confusion. So if you bring up a different interpretation of something, even if it's an interpretation that most of the Christian church holds, or, you know, you point out that a particular interpretation of something may be a fairly new one, people will just, you know, throw out the the uh, talking point, well, God's not the author of confusion, you're causing confusion, therefore I shouldn't listen to what you're saying. And it's this, it's this idea, really, that leads to the idea of our theology being inspired and inerrant. And it's not. The Bible says we see through a glass darkly. Uh, we don't understand it all. We don't see it all. And trying to come to grips with what a particular passage means is much different than denying what the text says. But when you think about it, most pastors go to a seminary that mirror the beliefs that they were taught. So they pick a seminary that agrees with them, and then they come and they preach what they were originally taught and maybe expound on it a little bit based on you know what they learned in seminary, largely in a uh, historical grammatical hermeneutic, if you grew up in the traditions that I did, of uh, getting into the Hebrew because they learned Hebrew a little bit, getting into the Greek because they learned Greek a little bit, and they've relied on Hebrew and Greek dictionaries and you know cross references based on you know how other authors used a specific word in the Bible and I'm sure you're familiar with all of that but they're not really interested in studying opposing views I had a, a pastor in what many would be consider a mega church that I was a very active member in and was doing work at. And the pastor was starting a sermon series on a particular topic. And I told him that I had a very excellent book that covered the different views of that particular topic in case he wanted to, you know, use that as a resource. I would loan it to him. And his response literally blew my mind. He said, why would I want to study other views? Well, to me, it's kind of self-evident. If your particular view is a fairly new one, it might be educational and informative to learn where it came from and why other church leaders in the past or early church fathers held to a different view. If anything, it diminishes the dogmatism in what is being taught. It's one thing to get in a teaching position and say, the Bible says... X and fill in that blank with whatever the interpretation is that you hold. It's quite another to get up and say, the Bible says this, there are, here are two or three main ways that this particular thing can be understood, that this particular passage can be understood. This is my particular view on it, and this is why I hold it. And go ahead and preach your particular view on it. But we shouldn't raise our particular view to the level of inerrancy, that we should never question it, that we should never change it. Because, like I said, First Thessalonians 5.21 says for us to test everything. We're great at applying that verse, views that we don't hold. 
and being skeptical about the views that we don't hold and try to find all the reasons why that particular view might be bad. But how many of us have held a particular view on any particular topic in the Bible and studied why somebody else believes differently and what their particular actual belief is? Not many people will go through that effort, but our Just as Christ grew in wisdom and strength, we should grow in wisdom. And as we meditate on the Bible, it it so frequently tells us all through Psalms and Proverbs and stuff to meditate on the Bible, that when we study and meditate on the Bible, we should gain new insights. And those new insights should be incorporated into our current theology possibly even change our current theology based on our study. Otherwise, it's kind of a lazy approach to just take scripture, read it based on what somebody told you that it says, read it as a proof text in context, and never dig any deeper and never be willing to change our particular position on something. The idea that we're supposed to meditate on scripture is kind of a Eastern mindset. And we have to realize that because the Bible was written in that particular worldview where truth was something that was intended to be discovered in the text, as opposed to our Western mindset where we state a truth and give an outline of all the reasons why we believe that it's true. It was believed that if you discover something in the text, that it will impact you more than somebody just taking it at face value and reading it to you and giving it to you as a talking point rebuttal to some current day crisis or conflict or debate. So we need to understand that the Bible is intended to be studied at that particular level and to glean truth from it and that it shouldn't just be read as talking points and proof texts. There's kind of a humorous example, as I close here, of how beliefs about what the Bible says in a historical grammatical approach to the Bible, how that can change over time as we learn additional things and we see how a particular Hebrew word that might only be used in the Bible once or twice, how that is used elsewhere and can help us in re-understanding what the Bible says and change how the Bible is translated. This particular example comes from Michelangelo, and uh, he's responsible for a lot of different famous things. But one of the things that he did was to carve a statue of Moses. And you can Google this just for, just search for Michelangelo Moses sculpture. But he carved a very famous statue of Moses that is almost like in the thinker pose that you see in uh, in cartoons and drawings of, you know, somebody in deep thought kind of bent over a little bit. But if you study and you look closely at the head of Moses in that statue, he's got horns coming out of his forehead, the top of his forehead, like right at the hairline. He's got two little horns coming out. And that's because at the time that that statue was done, they interpreted a Hebrew word there as horns that we now understand to mean a glowing countenance on your face. We understand it now as Moses was in the presence of God. 
and that the glory of God was so overwhelming that when he came down from the mountain, that he had a glowing countenance. Well, at the time that they they believed that when he was in the presence of God, God's glory was so great that it gave him goat horns, basically. So it's a humorous example that's literally carved in stone of how understandings of the Bible change over time. And change is not necessarily a bad thing. That just as doctrines change over time, understanding of specific words change over time, outside influences of new discoveries of of new documents and that kind of stuff impact our understanding of the Bible. And they should because we end up with a better understanding of the Bible as opposed to standing firm on what the Bible clearly says. It clearly says he had horns and that's how it's referenced in the, you know, in the Bible. The only other time this word is used in the Bible, it means this particular thing, you know, kind of approach. That is a very legalistic, historical, grammatical approach to the text that in a lot of ways abuses the text and takes it to a level that I think we we should avoid. Just as we've studied our current 21st century cosmology and we understand that the earth is not still, that the sun doesn't really rise and set, but the earth is revolving and that, you know, the earth is not the center of the universe with the sun rotating around us and all of these things that biblical cosmologists have been wrong about in the past when it comes to the earth being flat and geocentrism and all of that kind of stuff. We need to understand that advancements particularly in the last 50 years, have shed a lot of light on nature and on cosmology and astrology, almost said astrology, astronomy and other things. And we should be willing to incorporate that body of knowledge into how we understand what the Bible is and isn't saying about those particular things. Now, before I go, I want to give a special thanks to our new sponsor. I mentioned this in the introduction of the podcast, but we have a new sponsor, Headliner. Headliner is really, really cool. Headliner allows you to create videos from audio files or snippets from audio files that can then be shared on places like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. We are a very graphical generation. And people respond to memes where they wouldn't respond to the exact same thing just written as text. A meme, something with a picture, grabs your interest. And my goal is to convert these podcasts into videos that can then be shared on YouTube and Facebook so that people who would not normally subscribe to a podcast, people like my son, for example, has never subscribed to a podcast never listened to a podcast, but he's on Facebook. He watches YouTube videos and it's an entirely different market. If I can post the video on places like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, it allows for uh, people to subscribe to those particular locations, just like they would any other video content and access it through those particular delivery mechanisms. So it won't be limited strictly to audio podcast directories. 
not only do they do that particular thing, but they can even take text from like a web page and summarize the key, automatically summarize the key points of that particular story and produce a video, short video of that particular story automatically. It's really pretty cool. I did a test where I was uh, just shared the link to a new Pew Research article that came out about how people trust science, what percentage of people trust science, depending on their particular political persuasion. And when it was talking about conservatives, for example, it was showing slideshows of President Trump and uh, current Republicans and conservatives. And when it was talking about politicians as a whole, it was putting up images of, you know, people, uh, pictures of Congress and that kind of stuff. And it was overlaying it with the text from the article. And so it's really, really pretty cool. But they also offer transcriptions of audio in the podcast or in the, in the video or we'll even do a live waveform on the bottom of a background image as the video plays. So it's got some really, really cool features to it. And uh, I'd like for you to check it out with a sign up for a free account. And that's basically how you can help the podcast here. If you go to bit.ly slash conflictyt. I abbreviated YouTube YT. So if you go to bit.ly slash conflict YT, it will take you to my referral page. And if you sign up for a free account and just look and see what some of the cool things are that they can do, it basically gives uh, the podcast here a free month's subscription to their higher tier service where you can do a lot more. And that would really, really help the podcast here. It's free. It doesn't take but a couple minutes of your time to go check them out. I'll put this link in the show notes. But if you go check them out, uh, that would be a big help. And I want to I thank them for being a sponsor of the podcast here. So uh, be sure to check out the show notes. You'll see all the links that I've mentioned here, including the link to the website that has all of the resources and all the different sources for the podcast and that kind of stuff. I hope you've learned something new uh, or at least thought of something in a new way. As always, you can send me feedback or send me questions at creationandconflict at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to get your suggestions on how to make the podcast better, how to make, improve the sound quality, that kind of stuff, as well as hear from you about what kind of episodes you would like to make sure that I cover in the future. Until next time, this is your host, Daniel Eaton, thanking you for listening to another episode of Creation and Conflict, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. Thanks again for listening.